This event was recorded at the 2018 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I'm glad two or three of you managed to pop along. Um, I believe we're running a little late because the, the queue doubled back in itself around the, uh, around the green, which shows the, the popularity of this afternoon's guest. My name is Ruth Wishart, and I'm very, very happy to be chairing this event. Um, as you know, um, our guest has been the subject of a number of descriptions in the media over the years, not all of them entirely flattering. Um, they include being described as an ayatollah without a deity and a professional atheist. I think it'd probably be more accurate to describe him as a serial controversialist, as his robust views and subjects as varied as religion, and education, evolution, Brexit, and of course the somewhat alarming decision of the American people to choose Donald John Trump as the saviour of world peace and harmony. <laughs> These are the kind of views that are never likely to cause an outbreak of apathy amongst his readers and listeners. We're reminded forcibly of his many interventions in the public discourse in all of these uh, subjects thanks to a new book which collates many of his closely argued lectures and articles and letters. And it's a sort of void around one of the most stimulating intellects in the United Kingdom. Unsurprisingly, he's got very firm views on the kind of science which matters. And I quote from the book, I've long been an advocate of the visionary, poetic side of science, science to stir the imagination as opposed to the non-stick frying-pan school of thought, a tendency I've compared to an attempt to justify music as good exercise for the violinist's right arm. <laughs> he hails originally from that uh, now high-profile location known as Chipping Sodbury, but you suspect somehow that Jeremy Clarkson wasn't among the regular supper guests. Please welcome Richard Dawkins. Now, um, there's obviously going to be a lot of questions, but we're going to start off this afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Um, Richard's going to read a little bit from the introduction to his book, which kind of sets the scene. Well, thank you very much, Ruth. Um, Chipping Norton, actually, although... Norton? Did I say Sodbury? I wonder why. Chipping chipping Sodbury might be more suitable (laughs) (laughs) for some of the high-profile residents there, the the so-called... Chipping Norton's set, which includes David Cameron as well as Jeremy Clarkson. Actually, the Dawkins family have been uh, members of the Chipping Norton set ever since 1723, which means these are the uh, late late comers. Migrants. Yes, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm writing this two days after a breathtaking visit to Arizona's Grand Canyon. Breathtaking still hasn't gone the way of awesome, although I fear it may. To many Native American tribes, the Grand Canyon is a sacred place, site of numerous origin myths from the Havasupai to the Zuni, hushed repose of the Hopi dead. If I were forced to choose a religion, that's the kind of religion I could go for. The Grand Canyon confers stature on a religion, outclassing the petty smallness of the Abrahamics, the three squabbling cults which, through historical accident, still afflict the world. In the dark night, I walked out along the south rim of the canyon, lay down on a low wall and gazed up at the Milky Way. 
I was looking back in time, witnessing a scene from a hundred thousand years ago, for that is when the light set out on its long quest to dive through my pupils and spark my retinas. At dawn the following morning I returned to the spot, shuddered with vertigo as I realized where I had been lying in the dark, and looked down towards the canyon's floor. Again I was gazing into the past, two billion years in this case, back to a time when only microbes stirred sightless beneath the Milky Way. If Hopi souls were sleeping in that majestic hush, they were joined by the rock-bound ghosts of trilobites and crinoids, brachiopods and belemnites, ammonites, even dinosaurs. Was there a point in the mile-long evolutionary progression up the canyon strata when something you could call a soul sprang into existence, like a light suddenly switched on? Or did the soul creep stealthily into the world, a dim thousandth of a soul on a pulsating tube worm, a tenth of a soul in a coelacanth, half a soul in a tarsia, then a typical human soul, eventually a soul on the scale of a Beethoven or a Mandela? Or is it just silly to speak of souls at all? We'll get on to the matter of the soul in a little while, uh, Richard, but um, I think one of the reasons that um, you have been so controversial over the years is because your denunciation of religion in all its many guises has been couched in such robust terms. I mean, you say in, in, in one of the essays in this book that it's one of the greatest threats to humankind, rather like smallpox, but more difficult to eradicate. Obviously, only some religions and only parts of those. Um, the point is, I think, that religious faith, if it's really, really taken seriously, if you really, really believe what you're officially supposed to believe, if you really, really believe what's in your holy book, and you believe it because you have faith, which is unassailable and unarguable, which is what faith actually is, because faith does not rest on evidence. Faith simply rests on total and utter conviction. If you have such faith, then nobody can shake it, nobody can remove it, nobody can change it, nobody can argue against it with any success. And that can be dangerous. Of course it isn't always, but if your faith happens to tell you that you ought to kill apostates or blow yourself up, whatever it might be, then you cannot be persuaded out of it, and that's why it is so very dangerous. Interestingly, I was having a conversation uh, last evening with a man who's written a book about Islam, and one of his central points was that the kind of people you're talking about who um, blow things up, who kill people, who throw homosexuals from the top of buildings, his view was, as a Muslim, as a practicing Muslim, his view was that they should be excommunicated, they should be declared non-Muslims, and by that, um, by that means they would no longer be able to call themselves martyrs. Yes, well, um, unfortunately I missed his talk. I, I tried to get into, Ed, it was Ed Hussein you're talking That's about. That's right. I tried to get into his talk today and I arrived uh, too, too late and so I wasn't allowed in. Um, but, but, but yes, I mean, that, that might be a solution, I, I, I suppose. If, if such people were excommunicated, it, it might change things for the better. One of the, um, your central tenets, of course, is that the thing that uh, uh, makes science different from religion is that you, uh, science 
and whether it's whether it's, it's conducted one day in New York and, and on one day in Moscow will always come to the same result, provided it's done with sufficient intellectual rigor. Whereas you say that um, theology has no such um, no such um, robust rational hinterland, but you don't think, presumably, that all religions are a, are a force for bad and that no religions are a force for good? No, I never said that. Um, my, my point simply was that religion, because it depends upon unargued faith, is vulnerable to being, to being bad. Um, it's sort of also vulnerable to being good, of course. Um, but because you can't argue against it, then there's always the possibility, and the very distinct possibility with it, which is actually realized, that a minority of individuals will take their faith so seriously that they will do terrible things. The point is that there is a, an actual rational pathway that leads from the premise of unargued faith by logical steps to terrible violence. Once you start with the premise that your God is, argu- is asking you to martyr yourself or kill apostates, whatever it is, once you have accepted that as an axiom, then everything else follows. And that's what's, what's so dangerous. I suppose, though, to get back to my original question, would you accept the thought that the terms in which you've denounced these particular adherents of religion, the terms that you've used, have caused offence to people who certainly wouldn't share uh, any kind of violent in- inclination? Yes, and that's probably because I wasn't sufficiently clear in, in, making, in, in saying that I was only talking about the fringe who do take it too far. But I would reiterate that that fringe is only possible because of the existence of faith, and faith which means belief without evidence. Faith is advocated as a good thing to millions of people, most of whom do not take it sufficiently seriously to be dangerous. But there are madrasas, there are, there are schools which teach the virtue of faith. Jesus himself taught the virtue of faith without evidence. He actually held up the other disciples over doubting Thomas. Um, Whereas you're a bit of a fan of doubting Thomas. Well, doubting Thomas should be the patron saint of scientists, <laughs> yes. <laughs> now, I'm not um, in any way uh, trying to be controversial myself here, but I don't know whether you heard the news this morning that there was a court case in America and it involved um, the use of, of uh, a weed killer which, and, and the, the burden of the court case was whether or not this was carcinogenic and um, the man who brought the case won his case. But in the course of the evidence, it was uh, suggested that there were emails from the Monsanto executive to certain scientists, and the burden of what these emails said was they wanted the scientists to come to conclusions that would reflect the corporate view of the product. In other words, they were asking the scientists to cheat. Now, you've said in the book that you think that is the cardinal sin of science is for anybody to cheat. But there have been, haven't there, instances of that with, with now and with tobacco and with climate change? This is utterly deplorable, and it's especially deplorable in science, because if, if scientists cheat, if scientists fiddle their figures, then the entire scientific enterprise is subverted. Science depends upon the presumption that scientists are honest. This, is not, this does not apply to some other professions. The legal profession, for example. Um, well, they're not exactly, not exactly paid to lie, but they are paid to advocate a certain point of view, even if they are not totally convinced of its veracity them, themselves. Scientists absolutely have to sign up to truth, because otherwise the entire scientific enterprise is 
is vitiated. Now, you mentioned smoking. Um, it's true that when the evidence for the connection between smoking and lung cancer came out, probably the most distinguished statistician and evolutionary biologist of the first half of the 20th century, Sir Ronald Fisher, was in effect bought by the tobacco industry, uh, which is a terrible indictment of what was otherwise a great scientist. Um, the ones who were bought by Monsanto are not great scientists, but it's still equally deplorable. You, d you do make the point, I mean, I don't, don't want to antagonise the legal fraternity, especially in a town like Edinburgh, um, but there, you make an interesting comparison in the book, with, uh, with, and it's a conversation you had with a young female lawyer, and if you remember, uh, she'd said that she was, she was very happy because she had a client, um, uh, I think, on a murder charge or something very serious, and she'd found some evidence that was going to... Yes, she was, she was a, a defence lawyer in, in, in America... Uh, lawyers are either defence or prosecution, unlike British ones, British uh, barristers who can be either. Um, and uh, she told me that she just that day had received news that a, a private detective that she had hired had found conclusive evidence that her client couldn't possibly have done the murder. It was indeed a murder, had, had, had done the murder. And she was delighted. So I said, well, that's well, good news, well done. But what would you have done if your detective had found evidence that he had done the murder? And she said, I would have suppressed it. Uh, it's up to the prosecution to find their own evidence. So she was taking the extreme adversarial point of view, that she was the defence. She would do everything in her power, even to the length of suppressing evidence, or not, allow, not bring it to the attention of the prosecution. And that's what stems from the adversarial point of view. I also, possibly in the book, I can't remember if it comes in, made a similar point about a young woman who I heard debating in a university debate at, in the University of Bristol, which was about creationism and evolution. And she had made really the only good speech on the creationism side. And she happened to sit next to me at dinner after the debate, and so I congratulated her on her speech. And then she said, oh, I didn't believe a word of it, I was just giving the best case I could. And I was very shocked at that. Uh, I felt that I'd wasted my time coming to speak at a debate where somebody so insincere could do that. I've since learned that debating societies do that habitually. They actually do um, break it to the speakers only immediately before the debate, or shortly before the debate, which side they've got to advocate. And I was shocked at that. I'm a little bit less shocked at that now because I've started to see the virtue of, obviously that's good training to be a lawyer, but I started to um, see the virtue of that because it is a virtue to see the other side of a case in which you passionately believe. It's, it, it's a good thing before advocating the case that you do passionately believe in to acquaint yourself as thoroughly as possible with the opposite side. And I now have to admit that one of the best ways to acquaint yourself with the opposite point of view, is to prepare the best advocacy of it that you can. So I slightly backtrack from my distaste at this young woman. I'm guessing we shouldn't hold our breath, however, for you to appear at the Oxford Union proposing that creationism should be taught in schools. No, I, I'm not going to do that myself, but I, I, I do see the virtue of looking at the counter-arguments, uh, if there are any. In the case of creationism, there aren't any. I mean, in case of <laughs> so that's that, really, yes. Yeah. 
But you do make a, another point about education in, in more general terms and religious education, because you talk about the fact that um, religion is, is uh, faith is one of the, of, the, of the few things that is government-sponsored in as much as you have religious education in schools, and you argue quite powerfully in the book for the fact that uh, the religious education slot should be divided up into teaching religion and teaching science. So what would you... Well, I... I I am in favour of religious education in the sense of teaching children about religion, teaching them the existence of religion, teaching them the history of religion, um, teaching them the holy books from a literary and a literary point of view of, that have dominated the religions of the world. So, um, uh, for, for example, English literature is... Um, you, you really can't take your allusions unless you're familiar with the Bible. There's so, so many of them. I mean, as many as Shakespeare. Um, so I, I, I am in favour of that, and you can't understand European history and all the wars of European history unless you know about the terrible conflicts between Catholics and Protestants and so on. Um, so I'm, I'm in favour of religious education. Um, I'm not in favour of educating children, indoctrinating children in a particular religion telling them you are a Catholic child or you are a Protestant child, whatever it is, and therefore this is what you believe. That, I think, is deeply evil. It's divisive. Uh, it's treating ch uh, the children's intellectual capacities with contempt rather than letting them come to their own conclusions, at least when they're old enough to do so. Why do you think... I mean, there are obviously arguments for and against all kinds of uh, religious education, but, but given that creationism is so easily disproved, why do you suppose that it's taken such a hold in some parts of America, for instance? That is a very difficult question. I can only think that it's because of childhood indoctrination, where at a sufficiently young age children are persuaded that the absolute truth is the truth in whatever the holy book is. And they are, to make it um, even more p powerful, they are actually warned Satan will come to you and put forward false arguments. These arguments will sound very persuasive. All the evidence will seem to be in favour of their arguments. But don't listen. It is only Satan who's talking. And if you're indoctrinated with that, if you're imprinted with that as a young child, I sort of can see that it might be rather hard to shake off. There's a lovely quote um, on creationists in the book, um, which says, uh, if a time machine could serve up to you your 200 million greats grandfather, you would eat him with sauce tartare and a slice of lemon because he was a fish. <laughs> so you'll see there's lots of humour in this book as well. Let's go on, if we may, um, to some contemporary politics because you're, you're, you, um, you're, you're very uh, keen to keep emotion and gut instinct out of, out of the voting booth is the way you characterise it, I think. Well, yes. Um I am. By the way, but before leaving the, the fish, can I just... I should, have, I should have said a little bit about that. Um, the, the, the context of that is that uh, it, it's, it's, the, it's the essay um, a, a, which I call the, the tyranny of the discontinuous mind, where time and again we, we divide lines, we, we draw lines between things where there is no line to be drawn. And for example, people will often ask the question, who was the first human being? When did the first human being live? And the answer to that is a little counterintuitive. There never was a first human being because everybody, every individual, every animal, every creature ever born belonged to the same species as its parents. And despite that, 
mildly paradoxically, if you have 200 million generations back from humans, you do come to a fish. The, 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 tra the transition from generation to generation is so small that you can't notice it, uh, and it is still the case that every child is the same <coughs> species as its parent. There never was a pair of Australopithecine ape parents who looked in the cradle and gazed fondly down at the first human baby. It didn't happen like that. It was always the, sa the same species, and yet if you go back sufficiently far, you come to a fish. It is slightly, it's not, I wouldn't use the word paradoxical, it's slightly counterintuitive. Some people do have trouble grasping it. Um, now, sorry, I come to the question that, um, about, um, oh, oh, was it emotion in, yes, in the voting? Yes, uh, and you said you, that there was no place in the, in the voting booth for, for gut instinct. Yes, gut instinct. Um, we all of us are susceptible to it, and I, I suppose I have to plead guilty as well. But when it comes to a really serious decision like voting, then it is best to decide rationally and on the basis of evidence what is the best policy, rather than to be swayed by your, by your gut feeling. And I fear that in the uh, Brexit referendum, too many people were swayed by their gut, and not enough were swayed by um, consideration of the highly complicated issues at stake. To be fair to them, David Cameron should never have offered a referendum to people who haven't got the time to study all the detailed ramifications of the topic. I wonder if I might just intrude at that, because so, you did mention of David Cameron's um, decision to have the, the referendum. Um, it's said that a leftover statute of British common law stipulates that no idiot shall be admitted to Parliament. You'd think at least that statute might apply to Prime Ministers. <laughs> Isn't that a lovely statute? I, I, I'm told it still is on the, on the statute book. Um, unfortunately, I suspect that, 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 that when, it was, when it was added, um, the word idiot had a more technical meaning. <laughs> But you have uh, invaded against uh, the result of the Brexit uh, referendum, um, uh, and as you know, there's a huge um, momentum behind now. Maybe that's the wrong choice of word in the current. There's uh, quite a head of steam building up towards a, a, a people's vote on whatever deal is finally uh, uh, brought home. Would you be in favour of that, given what you've just said about the well, difficulty? Well, I, yes, I, I would, because al although I don't think there ever should have been a referendum, I suspect the only way to undo the damage is to have another one. And it is, it is certainly a fair point that the, the first the referendum of 2016 was a simple yes-no vote without any clue about what a yes or indeed a no vote, what any clue what a yes vote would mean. The, the technical complexities have become all too apparent in the uh, train wreck of the negotiations that have been, that have been happening. And so I think that although I disapprove of referenda, I think I'll stick to referendums. Although I disapprove of referendums in general, I think the only way to undo the damage of the first one is to have a second one. In this case, not a simple yes-no vote on the, on the principle itself, but on the detailed terms of the, uh, of the negotiation that's finally arrived at. Now, I, w I want to pick you up, if I may, on, on something you, you assert in the book. Um, you're talking about the, uh, the moral arc and you're suggesting that um, uh, in future decades and century, uh, um, it's unmistakably going in one direction towards more civilised values. Um, 
despite, um, as you say, some erratic zigzagging. So I think I need to know whether you think Donald Trump is a zigzag or whether he's a or whether he's just refuting your entire theory about us going in the right direction. No, I, I, he's a zigzag, I think. Um, the, the, um, I, I, I base that statement on two rather good books, Stephen Pinker's The Better Angels of Our Nature and Michael Shermer's The Moral Arc. Um, both these books, I think especially Stephen Pinker, takes a, a long, very learned, very detailed, very uh, fact and uh, forced um, look at long-term history, going right back to prehistory, and suggesting that as the centuries go by, we have been getting nicer. Uh, we've abolished slavery, the rights of women, we no longer torture cats for entertainment, uh, and so on. There are an enormous numbers of, of instances of where human nature, human, human behavior has become uh, better by the standards of what we think of today. And I see no reason why that trend shouldn't continue. And of course, like any long-term historical trend, it's not a smooth one, it is a zigzagging one. And much greater zags than Donald Trump were the two great world wars of the 20th century. They were appalling zags, zigs. Um, uh, but nevertheless, Steven Pinker even deals with those and shows that in spite even of them, the historical trend which he discerns, the improving moral arc, uh, is there. So you would say that even, uh, not the world wars, but even looking now at the rise of, of some very unsavoury political parties throughout Europe, even now with the way that we've been treating <coughs> refugees and asylum seekers throughout Europe, that's just a zig or a zag? Yes, it's very easy to look at the immediate short-term present and think that it's, that it's, a, that it's a general trend. It's a, it's a, we have to see the wood for the trees. Now, I want to just quickly pick you up on one or two things from the book before we, before we let you yes. let the audience loose <coughs> on you. Um, you're, you're quite um, complacent, in, in my view, about the benign effect of, of, the, of the web, of the, of the internet. You, you call it a work of human genius, and you say, of course, that you know, it, there are bits of negativity, but in the greater scheme of things, they don't matter very much. There are mistakes, but the half-life of a mistake is quite a short one. Yet... We learn now, or we seem to be learning, that the internet has been used to subvert natural justice in a whole host of ways. Yes, that is very true. Um, of course, every time you have something where you want to say, well, there's good and bad, um, it's easy to get the balance slightly wrong, and, um, it, and maybe, it's, maybe the bad outweighs the good, maybe the good outweighs the bad. Um, at a book festival, it might be an appropriate moment to mention um, uh, I, I was sent this morning a rather nice cartoon by somebody which showed a bookseller talking to a customer and saying to the customer, yes, well, admittedly, the print books are uh, having a hard time at the moment, but at least when you read a print book, you don't, when you turn to the last page, find a, a whole set of obnoxious comments, which is what you get on the, on the internet when you, re when you read anything. Um, there's an awful lot of obnoxious people about, and the internet brings them out. And so an awful lot of what you read on the internet is very unpleasant, an awful lot of it's very vicious, violent, in language, um, stupid, um, and you do have to become discriminating, discerning, in sorting out what's good I wasn't thinking so much of the fact that people get trolled on the internet, because that's self-evidently unacceptable, <coughs> but nevertheless you can dismiss it as being unacceptable. 
What I was thinking more of was the way it was being used to manipulate voting patterns Appalling, and to target yes. individual voters. Yes, that, that's right. I mean, Cambridge Analytica and the, the, yes, the, all of that. the Russian subversion and, and so on. It's very, very dangerous. And uh, there are good books out now um, un uncovering the in, in merciless detail how, how this was done. Um, and it's something we've got to guard against. When, any, when there's any new, major new innovation, uh, it may take a little bit of time for us to catch up and put in place the necessary safeguards, maybe even legislation, uh, to control the possible bad effects of the new, in this case, new technology. Now, there's something I want to throw at you because it's apropos of absolutely nothing, but it was just such an intriguing quote. You said, um, if scientific theories could vote, evolution would surely vote Republican. <laughs> yes. Why? Um, well, there's a sort of a slightly a, a point of irony, really, that, that um, if you take natural selection, Darwinian natural selection, as a political lesson, which you most certainly should not do, and all through my entire career I've, um, I've argued passionately against doing that, but if you were to do that, then the kind of world, the kind of political system that you would end up with would be a deeply unpleasant one. It would be one that would appeal to extreme Republicans. That's really what I meant. Right. Okay. I'll, I'm, I'm not entirely sure that I'm with you in that, given the extreme Republicans I've met of, of late. You seem to be giving a bad rap to evolution. Oh, that's the point of the irony. Ex exactly. I mean, they, what, what my point was that they don't realise that, that actually they might make their political point more forcefully if they were to I almost said use natural selection, I should really say misuse natural selection. They could find if they took natural selection in a misusing kind of way, they could use it as a weapon in favour of their deeply unsavoury politics. Fine. Now, I want just to finish before we open up to the audience with um, something you've, you said. I, I promised you we'd get back to the soul, um, about which you've got quite a lot to say in various parts of the book. And you've said, um, science will kill the soul in 50 years. Discuss. Well, in, that essay was commissioned by the literary agent John Brockman. It was, it was, you're supposed to look 50 years into the future, and each of his uh, very rich address book were asked um, to, to contribute to that question. And mine was, in 50 years, science will, kiss, will kill the soul. Um, and of course, I had to begin by explaining what I meant by the soul. In this particular case, I meant soul in the religious sense of the immortal soul, that which is detached from and has nothing to do with the physical body. But there's another meaning of soul, which is the meaning that I use in the title of the book, Science in the Soul. There's another meaning which is nothing to do with anything supernatural. It's the poetic, aesthetic response to the scientific worldview, which I associate with people such as well, Carl Sagan, Jacob Bronowski, uh, and, um, well, even Charles Darwin. Thank you. Now, if we could have the lights up. Uh, because we're um, a larger-than-usual gathering, we've um, reached the dizzy scientific <coughs> heights of four mics instead of, instead of two. So if you'd, there's a, a hand up there and one in the front as well. If we could go to them first, please. <coughs> Lady in the front there and then gentleman behind. Professor Dawkins. Um, I would be interested to know whether you think that organic agriculture, which is the only form of agriculture guaranteed to have no GMOs in it, 
is the type of uh, food that you would uh, give preference to eating with your family? I think it's important not to get uh, religious in the metaphorical sense about organic agriculture and GMOs. Um, GMOs simply means genetically modif modified organisms and you can modify things in a good way or a bad way. And so it's a real mistake to use the, the word GMO as a bad word, as though modif genetic modification of organisms is always bad. It can be bad, it can be good. The trick is to choose the good and not the bad, as so often. Having said that, it is important, as I said with respect to the internet, with any new technology, it's important to exert the precautionary principle and make sure that you uh, can cope with the, no the, with the novelty of something. But simply to say that GMOs are bad, organic agriculture is good, as a blanket statement, I think is verging on theological, and I would not subscribe to it. Thank you. And we'll take the gentleman back there and then we'll go. I'll, I'll come back to you. I need somebody over here. Yes. The, um, the God delusion and your other writings make a compelling, arguably unanswerable case in favour of atheism. How is it that um, one comes across academics, scientists, you know, some of your own colleagues, who otherwise one would view as incredibly intelligent, buying this... Um, fantastical, crazy argument of religion? I think you have to ask them very clearly and press them on exactly what it is they believe. You'll very often find that although they call themselves religious, if you say, what do you actually believe? They say, oh, well, I, I feel spiritual about the universe. I feel spiritual about life. I do too, in one sense, in the sense of science in the soul. Um, so, uh, the... Um, the uh, spiritual, in that sense, in the good sense, response to looking out at the stars, looking at the Milky Way, looking at distant galaxies, looking down a microscope at the complexity of life, being awestruck by these things. There are people who say, oh, well, that's what I mean by religion. So you have to put all those people on one side, and I think that's the majority of the people that you're actually probably talking about. There are a few remaining ones who actually do believe that Jesus was born of a virgin, walked on water, uh, was resurrected, and so on. They are, among scientists, they are a very small minority. And uh, among real good scientists, an extreme, an even smaller one, um, and I find them really quite hard to understand, uh, there is some evidence of a complete ability to separate different parts of the brain. The most extreme examples I can think of are a professor of astronomy in America who uh, writes perfectly respectable mathematical, astrophysical, theoretical papers about astronomy which assume that the universe is 13.8 billion years old. And he does the mathematics and gets it right and publishes his paper, but privately believes that the world is only 6,000 years old. Now, if the human brain, if any human brain, is capable of that degree of split-mind absurdity, then um, a, lesser, a lesser version of that could lead to a scientist who also believes that Jesus was born of a virgin. So I think that 
Uh, I think that's probably the kind of way to approach those extreme cases. But as I said to begin with, the great majority of religious scientists are only religious in the same sense that I am. Now, we'll go up the, up the back first of all for me because I don't want just to keep taking people at the front. Somebody on the, on the aisle there? Yes, thank you. Yeah, I, I know you say that there's not an evolutionary blueprint, but do you think there's an evolutionary reason for belief and spirit and so on? Yes. Um, when I say there's not an evolutionary blueprint, I, I, I mean that more generally, that, the, that, the, that the, the metaphor of a blueprint is a bad metaphor for DNA. A, a, a better met metaphor is a cookery recipe or a computer program. But I think that's not the question you're asking. I think you're asking whether there is a Darwinian advantage for in evolution. Uh, and that's a long and complicated question, and I'll try not to give a long and complicated answer. Um, I think that uh, there have been suggestions that evolution itself is of direct sorry, that religion itself is of direct evolutionary benefit. Um, it, it, it may contribute to improved health because um, re religious people may suffer less from mental stress or something like that. I don't think that's a very persuasive argument. Slightly more persuasive is one that you'll find in an excellent book by Jonathan Haidt, that's H-A-I-D-T, um, called... Um, I think the evolution of righteousness, something like that. Or no, the, the righteous mind, um, which, which suggests that evolution has a, a kind of group level benefit. Sorry, I keep religion. religion has a kind of uh, group level benefit um, in welding societies together and helping them to cooperate uh, in, a, in a beneficial, mutually beneficial, universally beneficial way. Um, and that, a serious case, has been made by him and others. My, my own answer to the question is more usually that religion is a byproduct of something else which has Darwinian survival value, some psychological predispositions which have, uh, benefit, have evolutionary benefit and from which flows religion as a byproduct, which may or may, which may probably, which doesn't have to be beneficial. In, in itself, and I've advocated this numerous times in, in my books. I probably better not spell it out now. Okay, well, um, we've got a mic there, and then there's a, a hand going up here, if we could get the next mic here. Yes, there's somebody in the aisle there, that lady in the aisle. <laughs> um, I was wondering, at the beginning, um, you were talking about the Muslim that suggested that all Muslims who, those who, um, you know, bomb and die themselves that they consider martyrs, that they should be excommunicated. Would you think that possibly they would create themselves a sort of break off Muslim religion to accommodate that? So I didn't quite understand the last bit. Do you, you think, think if, would they, would they uh, create a different kind of sect in order to accommodate the fact well, that they'd been thrown I out of the... I suppose that is, that is a risk. Uh, which would have to be taken into account. And as I say, I did not, I, I didn't, I wasn't able to get into um, Ed Hussein's uh, talk, so perhaps he would have, perhaps he, he, he considered that. Um, but, but I can see that if your, um, if your faith in, uh, in martyrdom is based upon uh, your holy book, 
um, if some very senior figure in your religion were to excommunicate you, it might shake your faith in a, in a good way. But I can see that you're, you're right, there could be a risk. They, they would simply hide themselves off into a separate sect and get even worse. Lady there. I am from... I am from CND. And, of course, science has produced wonderful things through nuclear science, but we have also produced weapons of mass destruction. How can science persuade the politicians who tell us that they will provide peace? How can you persuade them otherwise? It is not a religion. No, that's right. Um, it's, it's a very difficult question, and... Um, it, it bothered many of the scientists who were involved in the Manhattan Project uh, to produce the first atom bombs, um, including the leader, Robert Oppenheimer. Um, many of them joined groups and founded groups like the Pugwash organization to try to combat the terrible dangers of, of mass weapons of mass destruction. Um, I think it's probably unfair to blame science itself for weapons of mass destruction, but it is, it is certainly very fair to suggest that scientists should take responsibility and should ponder very deeply the moral implications of, 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 of what they're, they're doing. Um, I, I'm probably not much more that I can say than, than that. I don't, think you can, uh, I don't think you can legislate against people doing pure science because of the risk that... Um, applied science, engineering, may make use of those, of their theories and findings to make terrible weapons. That, that would never work. But I do think that scientists, are, as citizens, should take responsibility and, um, and consider the moral implications of, of, of the work that, that they do. Thank you. And there's somebody up at the back with the mic now. It's a hypothetical question, looking over the next 50 years plus. Say if we are able to achieve horizontal genetic transmission into human animals over the next 50 or 100 years, what impact would it have on science and soul as contextualized in your recent book? Sorry, what, what impact would what have? What impact would it have on science no, no, you and used soul? the word it and I, I missed what the it referred to. It referred to contextualized in your book. Science and soul as exemplified in your book. I still haven't quite got horizontal the... horizontal genetic transmission. Yes, genetic horizontal genetic transmission. Yeah, horizontal genetic transmission. Horizontal, yes. I got that. Okay, so Into human animals. Okay, what, what what effect would that have on on what I'm trying Science to say? Science and soul. Well, horizontal genetic transmission is a very interesting idea. Um, normally, in the biology of eukaryotic organisms, that's to say, most of the organisms we know about animals and plants and fungi. Uh, Evolution is a strictly branching process. Species are separate from one another. They, they originally were united and they split. And once they split, there is no further genetic um, uh, inter, inter, intercourse, that's actually literally right, bet between them. Um, so that genes are not transferred horizontally between them. In bacteria, they are. Bacteria have a much more promiscuous swapping of genes. There's a kind of copy and paste world in the world of bacteria where genes can be picked up from one bacterium and transferred to another just as you might transfer a whole lot of text from one document of Microsoft Word to another. Um, 
Controversially, it's been suggested that horizontal genetic transmission does occur in eukaryotes as well. Um, I think that if it, if it does occur, it's extremely rare. And if it does occur, I don't think it would have very much in the way of implications for anything that I've said in Science in the Soul. Now, there's somebody got the mic up in the corner there, yes. Mm. Professor Dawkins, thank you for that. Um, I was interested in the point you made about um, understanding the points of view of the opposition, you know, in relation to the debate is a good way of doing that. Um, there's a new uh, generation of theologians who are engaging very directly with your own work and very appreciatively of what you have done, including for the church. And one of the leading lights, in fact, in that new generation is Professor David Ferguson, a professor of theology at this university who's just given the Gifford Lectures. But given your uh, view that one should understand the points of view of people you disagree with, which works of modern theology and modern religious have you read yourself? I have often been urged to take uh, sophisticated modern theology seriously. When I have looked at it, I find that although professors of theology very often do extremely worthwhile work in things like biblical scholarship and biblical history, and this is very important and very worthwhile, when they come on to what I, what I could call pure theology, which is things like the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of uh, the transubstantiation, the mystery of this and the mystery of that, I am less than impressed because it always starts from the assumption that the, the, the basic assumptions of the theology are true, namely that there is something supernatural. And until they look seriously at the, at the, the total, total lack of evidence for any such thing, then I don't see any future in the kind of thing that I'm calling pure theology, but I would say again, because I've been accused of being in general anti-departments of theology, I do think that within departments of theology there is much excellent work going on on things like, oh, deciphering the Dead Sea Scrolls and comparing different biblical documents and so on, which is very Im important work. Now we've got a mic here, but I want to just, I don't want to run out of time, I want to get as many questions as possible. Is there anybody over here with a, there's a gentleman now, oh, you've got somebody right there. But we'll go here first. I, I'd like to ask you about the referendum. I'm one of the generation who voted in the referendum as to whether we should enter the common market or not. So many people, there's been a huge groundswell over the decades that this economic association became increasingly political and became rather large. I don't suppose many people foresaw the breakup of the Russian Federation, for example. How else could you have dealt with this groundswell of opinion other than with the referendum? That's a very serious point, and, and, and I, I don't wish to come across as, although I may have done in the past, I don't wish to come across now as being an unequivocal advocate of the European Union. I'm a very strong advocate that when a, when a major constitutional issue is at stake, like in this case leaving the, the European U Union, a simple 
yes-no vote on, on a, a 50% a simple, a simple majority is not, is not the way to proceed. This is a major constitutional change from a status quo which has been going for decades and where detailed relationships, academic and economic, have been built up. This is a major change which is irrevocable. And unlike a general election, where you can change your mind at most five years later, we are being asked now to vote for a change, we were asked in 2016 to vote for a change which was irrevocable, a major constitutional change. It's become a fairly well-established precedent in countries of the world that major constitutional changes like that should have a built-in conservatism, something like it requiring a two-thirds majority or a 60% majority, rather than just a 50% majority. In the United States, constitutional amendments require a two-thirds majority in both houses of Congress, which means they're very hard to achieve. And I think that's a good thing. Maybe two-thirds is too high, but certainly 50% is, is too low a margin for such a drastic and, and irrevocable change. But I'm fully um, sympathetic to the, the, the view that says we shouldn't have gone into the common market in the first place. Um, and, um, so, but that, that, I think, is, is a separate issue. Somebody on the, on the aisle has got the mic now, I think. Um, on a more emotive sort of point, um, you said that uh, religion had less effect on mental stress. Uh, I was listening to Louis de Bergier this morning, who asked his mother what she felt about her faith. And she said that if she didn't have her faith, she would die of loneliness. I wonder what your view was on that. Yes, well, I can see that uh, a very lonely person, and of course I have sympathy for a very lonely person, I can see that a very lonely person who doesn't have the comfort of uh, human consolation could very well get consolation from an imaginary companion. And um, that's, that's a psychological point. I, I have sympathy with it. Um, I, and, and it doesn't alter the fundamental point that the companion is imaginary. And um, as a scientist, that's what I care about. Uh, I, I don't think I would want to go barging into somebody who, who got um, emotional consolation from an imaginary friend and say, your imaginary friend doesn't exist, suck it up, tough. Um, but I, I write books about scientific truth and people are free to read them or not as they wish, and they don't have to. But you would accept the fact that for many people that friend in these circumstances is not to them at all imaginary? I would, um, but uh, that I, I would accept that not to them imaginary, but um, it is imaginary. <laughs> Somebody up there, yes. Professor Dawkins, I'd, I'd like to know your, your thoughts on what you think is the best form of government. Uh, being an American, one of our tenants in the Declaration of Independence said that we were endowed by our Creator with certain inalienable rights, among them life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And I think most people took that to mean that you can't take that away from us because it was God-given, and I realized that that could be metaphorical almost. But in a country 
where there seems to be a divine right of the monarchy, what is your thinking of how the best form of government would be devised? The, the founding fathers of the American Republic were 18th century men of the Enlightenment. They were mostly deists, um, and they stuck that phrase by the creator in. Uh, they didn't take it very seriously, um, but, they, but the rest of it they did take very seriously indeed, the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and that is entirely laudable, whether it comes from the creator or not. I think it's a, an ideal which we should aspire to, um, and uh, it, it was in reaction to a, a, a despotic monarchy, as you say. Um, the best form of government, well, um, nothing is ideal, and nothing's ever been proposed is, is totally I ideal. Uh, I think that democracy is the best of a bad lot, and we want to make our democratic institutions as democratic as possible. And in the case of the United States, that would mean, as a first step, doing away with the ri ridiculous electoral college, which is about as undemocratic as you could possibly imagine. I can and that's why we've got Donald Trump, by the way. <laughs> we can take, I think, one more question. We're, we bought ourselves some time because we were a little late starting. Has that gentleman got the mic? Yes, indeed. Uh, could you give us your thoughts on uh, the philosophies of a gentleman of this town, my namesake, a David Hume and a continental associate, René Descartes, on what to me is the most marvellous yet uncomprehensible thing, and that is human consciousness. It's the biggest mystery facing science. Uh, if I could solve the riddle of human consciousness, I would deserve a Nobel Prize. Um, I have read various books about it. I ponder it from time to time. Um, it, it is deeply mysterious because, from a Darwinian point of view, we only need to behave in a way that, in the most flexible and complicated ways possible, benefits our survival. Um, consciousness would seem to be a sort of add-on which is not essential and yet it's there. I suspect as a Darwin it probably is essential although it may seem not to be um, and I don't claim to to understand it. Um, in the case of Descartes he was a dualist uh, who thought that it was some, that, that, that mind was something to be separated from body, separated from physical reality that I would oppose. I think there is nothing other than physical reality and the emergent properties which come from it, of which conscious mind uh, seems to be one. Um, but as I said, I myself have nothing to offer except a sincere interest in the subject. Isn't it good when you get the easy questions at the end? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm just going to throw one more quick quote at you because we will have to stop. Um, um, and you've said um, we must stop taking advice from nature. Nature is a short-term Darwinian profiteer. Yes, well, that really comes back to the early question about, I think it might, might have been the first question, about GMOs and organic, um, or, or, organic farming. This was in a, an open letter to Prince Charles, who had given one of the Reith lectures in which he extolled the wisdom of nature and the wind rustling in the trees and, and uh, not listening to science. Um, and so 
uh, I tried to take him to task for his faith in, um, in, in nature and tried to make the point that if you look at the logic of Darwinian natural selection, it is very unpleasant indeed. It is natural. Nature really is red in tooth and claw. And although it is that red in tooth and claw process which has given us our bodies and our brains and indirectly our minds, nevertheless we should fight against that in planning our political institutions and the way we live our lives. Thank you very much. Now, um, there's, there's masses more, obviously, that we haven't touched on because this, this book encompasses all manner of letters and lectures, not, not all lectures to Prince Charles or letters to Prince Charles, but a whole range of, on education, on politics, on just about everything else you can imagine, apart, of course, from, from all the, the chapters in science. I warmly recommend it because, like everything Richard Dawkins writes, it's enormously uh, accessible and it's also very funny in lots of places. So he's going to be going out there to the signing, which is left and left again, as all you recidivists know. He's going to be there to, uh, to, where you can buy the book, have it signed and chat some more to him, if you wish, though. If you all stop to chat with him, I suspect... Um, you're probably going to miss whatever plane you're on. Anyway, ladies and gentlemen, please join me in thanking Richard Jockins. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.